The book of 1 Timothy begins on page 991 of your pew Bible. If you don't want to pull that out and you want to just look at the bulletin, I want to start today with verse 15 of chapter 3, which is there in the bulletin reading that we heard a moment ago, because I think it well summarizes the entire point of the book. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy he's writing this for a reason. And the reason is what verse 15 says, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So first, see that he, sa- he says that the church is the household of God. The English word church, coming from the German word kirka, is a very mediocre translation of the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia means assembly, or those who've been called out. I think when you say, are you going to church this week, it doesn't run through your head, are you going to the assembly of the resurrected? That's not kind of what we think of. We tend to think of the building, and maybe the worship service. But see here that it's not about the building. It's about we who are the people who have been brought into God's household. To say it's his family kind of works, except for that we don't have families like they used to. Three and four generations under one roof with other families that are hired servants or extended workers. So that a household is more like what you might think a baron would have or a duke would have in the Middle Ages. But in the history of the world, many smaller powers have had such types of household. Now, our household that we've brought into, been brought into, is the household of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So it's not only the household and church of God, it's the pillar of God. A pillar is something that holds other things up. And what is this pillar and buttress? It's the truth. So when he talks about how one ought to behave in the household of God, he's not talking about morality for morality's sake. He's not talking about being a goody two-shoes or something like that. He's talking about distinguishing between truth and lies, knowing the difference between good and evil. And even though today the common spirituality says that what's good for you is good for you and what's good for me is good for me and it'll all work out in the end, you can see with your own eyes how evil we are becoming and how disruptive and chaotic this has made our lives. So Paul again writes that we in the household of God, we who assemble to worship Jesus because we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, he would have us know how we ought to walk in the truth as those who are pillared, buttressed by that truth. If you flip back to chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, you'll see he starts off the book with a very similar teaching. Verses 1 to 3, he introduces the book. He says, I'm Paul. I'm writing to you, Timothy. The relationship of Paul and Timothy is a great story. It actually shows up in the book of Acts. They were very, very close-knit traveling companions. We won't get into that now. He's just writing this letter to Timothy because he's gone on and left Timothy behind somewhere else. And he's going to say that actually right here. Verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, that's the northern Greece area, 
Uh, you remain in Ephesus. That would be in Turkey, around what modern-day Turkey is. Remain in Ephesus so that, here's what you're supposed to do, Timothy, as a pastor. You're supposed to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. This doesn't really fit with modern sensibilities, that the first job of the pastor is to silence people. Now, we like to think that the first job is to win people or encourage people. And it's not that that isn't something a pastor should do. But when we think of the pastor as the teacher, we also want to think of him as the shepherd. And remember, when Jesus talks about what the good shepherd is, he doesn't talk about only someone who leads the sheep beside green pastures and fresh waters. That's the psalm. That's also true. But that's not what Jesus talks about. He talks about the shepherd as being the one who gets between the sheep and the wolf, who lays down his life at the teeth of the wolf so that the sheep might live. And I hope immediately you see that when Jesus says this about himself being the good shepherd who lays down his life at the, she- at the teeth of the wolf, you see the cross. And how our Lord Jesus Christ indeed took the venom of the serpent into his own flesh through those wounds and gory lashes and spikes and scars. And in so doing, in fact, brought the wolf down to death, even as he gave his own life for us. But then now we who are set to teach those who are the pillar of truth are to silence any who would disrupt and destroy that message. When he says that they are not to teach any different doctrine, he simply means they are not to distract us from the words of Jesus. They are not to take away from us what the Bible has clearly said. Now, if I might be acerbic for a moment and point out one of the most obvious places this has happened in the last generation and a half of American Christianity, and the LCMS has hardly been free from this, We have done a complete 180-degree turn on what it means to be a man and a woman. And when we come to those passages in the Bible that talk about what it means to be a woman, the majority of us feel a little awkward about it because it doesn't seem to fit with what we believe. And the reason for that is we have begun to believe those who teach otherwise, those who, he says, they promote speculation, right? What's speculation? That's when you think it makes sense. Yeah? When you think, ah, if it were this and that, then therefore this. Yeah? And so people hear Paul say something like, woman is to be subject to her husband. And they say, therefore that's sexist. Or therefore that's chauvinist. Or therefore that means women aren't of value. That's all speculation. Paul never said any of that. Paul only said that there's an order in marriage and that order promotes harmony and is from God. Now, I bring this up again. I said acerbic. I'm picking something that is easily divisive in our common culture because we need to see how easy it is for what the scriptures say to be kind of set to the side in order that we might speculate what we prefer to believe. In this, then, what are we really fighting against? We're fighting against this concept of speculation, our own ideas, What we think on instinct makes sense, rather than a stewardship from God that is by faith. A stewardship means something you have received that you hold because and for somebody else. 
What is the stewardship you have received? It is your baptism. It is you being declared a member of the household of God. You being brought into the body of Jesus Christ himself. And that means also all of his words. Remember in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus says, go, baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. He also says, and teach them to observe everything I have commanded. And I'm with you to the very end of the age. So not only do you see there that Jesus is present with you in his word and in the mystery of holy baptism, but you can now from that see this is a stewardship given to you. It is not as though you must earn this. It's been given to you. But now that it is given to you, you're not a potato. Huh? You're not a plant in the ground. You're a human with the will, with the mind. And so the stewardship of these words means to indeed use them, to read them, to imbibe them, to speak them, and to live by them, as opposed to these endless speculations, which he calls again in verse 4, myths and genealogies. Uh, we won't chase that too hard this morning. What I want to show you next is how in verse 5, he says the aim of our charge is love. I'm not going to go further yet. He says, Timothy, I left you there to silence false teachers, to only teach true doctrine, because that's what's going to make love. That's what's going to turn people into compassionate people. Again, it, it seems counterintuitive to our modern mind. How can someone silencing others create love? Isn't the silencing of someone else's opinion hateful? And that is indeed a virtue in our culture today. It is the mark of humility that you would shut your mouth whenever you would disagree with somebody who has the right kind of ideas. But Paul doesn't think that this will produce peace and care and charity among people. And again, I think you can look with your eyes and you can see that peace and care and charity are lacking in our society. Paul says what will produce that is clinging to the scriptures clinging to the true story about Jesus Christ, that mystery of godliness we'll be back to here in a moment. The aim of that teaching is that it will create in you true love by setting you free from the need to justify yourself, by making you a person who knows God has chosen you, you're his child now, he'll never leave you nor forsake you, and so you no longer have to worry about pleasing him. You may know that you are pleasing to him, and therefore, you've been set here to share that reality with everyone around you. This love that would then issue from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Yes, a sincere faith in who Jesus is. A good conscience because you know you are forgiven. And that is the definition of a pure heart. One who has no guilt to carry anymore. Again, because it's been buried in the wounds of Jesus on the cross. Verse 6 says, certain persons, by swerving from these, forgetting what Jesus did for us, have wandered away into vain discussion. Right? Human words, trapping and yapping and saying what they can say to try to make the world what it is. And he's not here talking about the heathen. And there are many ideas and there are many false gods, although we definitely have that again here among us these days in America. He's talking about the Christians who don't want to focus on what the Bible says, but would rather talk about what they want to talk about. And he says they wander away, desiring, verse 7, to be teachers of the law. That means teachers of what is good without understanding either what they are saying 
or the things about which they make confident assertions. All right. So the aim of doctrine is that we would know the love of Jesus Christ for us and thereby be set free into loving our neighbor as ourself, recognizing that the teaching is there to silence those who would say otherwise that would lead us away into our own vanity, into our own thoughts, which ultimately would disrupt and break us apart. Paul wants us to be sure we understand how much this has to do with the confession of our own sin. And that's why if you skip ahead to verse 12, it's on the bottom of that same column. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, he says, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Chief of sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Let's take this a little bit at a time here. Go back again to verse 12 in the middle. He gives thanks to Jesus. He says, because he, Jesus, judged me faithful. When Paul is on the road to Damascus with warrants in his pocket to put in prison anybody who believes in Jesus, he is not faithful. He's ignorant and unbelieving. And yet Jesus breaks with light out of heaven, knocks him onto the ground, blinds him so he might understand who he is, and judges him faithful. See the upside-down reality of grace. See how God judging you faithful isn't about what you've already done. It's about what God has decided you're going to do. And again, how this is good news for you. His judging you faithful changes you from one who is ignorant and unbelieving into one who is knowledgeable and believing. And the thing you become knowledgeable of is how you are a chief among the sinners. How you, like Paul, have nothing to bring to God on your own. And yet God has shed his blood for you that you might be made something more than what you were by your own sinful nature. Now, I don't know whether you personally in your life actually lived as a blasphemer. Have you actually spoken ill words about Jesus to your friends and neighbors? I don't know whether you personally ever persecuted the church. I'm sure there probably is someone in this room who in your younger years spoke awful words to a Christian about Christianity. I don't know whether you have been an insolent opponent of Jesus, but I do know that Paul doesn't call himself chief of sinners so we can all say, well, at least I'm better than Paul. Paul calls himself chief of sinners so that we can see that the step of the Christian toward Christ is to kneel. Yes, I said a few moments ago, we are beggars all. The last is first. The first is last. What is the doctrine that brings about love? It is the knowledge that I have no love of my own. 
but that Jesus Christ, who is the love and truth of God, has poured his love into me on my behalf. And knowing that is a promise that will begin to pour out to others around me. Does that mean I'm always going to be perfect at loving my neighbor? Not at all. But it does mean that my good conscience will want to love my neighbor. And when I fail, it'll be obvious to me. And I'll not like that. I'll feel bad about that. And then I have a choice. False teaching, feel like I don't deserve to come into God's presence. True teaching, remember that that's what the Lord's Supper is for. To bring all of my sin, all of my confusion, all of what I don't love into the assembly of the truth in order to have it covered once again by the deposit, that stewardship from God. Take, eat. This is forgiveness. Take, eat. This is adoption. Take, eat. This is eternal life. I want you to skip now to chapter 3, verse 14. This is where we heard our reading from earlier, where he says again, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing for you so that if I delay, you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The sections between this is all about how we ought to behave. Chapter 2 is about how men ought to behave, and then how women ought to behave, and then how pastors ought to behave. We're not going to dig into that, but if you read the book this week, it's pretty clear what it says. And you'll understand then he's starting out by saying, cling to the truth. And he tells you what the truth is, and now he reminds you, I'm writing this so you would know that right? That what this pillar and buttress of the truth holds is indeed true. But now he makes a turn. Up to this whole point, it has been about what you should be like since you know who Jesus is. But now in verse 16, he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of being a Christian. He just talked about what you're supposed to do. And now he says, but it's actually not about that at all. There's something far more important than what you're supposed to do. And if it's in your pew Bible, you can see this is set apart like a poem because the language is just so stunning that he, that's talking about Jesus now. Godliness is Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. That means he was incarnate. Vindicated by the spirit. That means that he was baptized, right? You see the baptism. It also means that he was resurrected from the dead. Seen by angels. This refers to everything from the angels in the sky over Bethlehem to the angel at his tomb when he rises to the angels that see him ascended to heaven and tell the apostles, you are witnesses of these things. Proclaimed among the nations. That doesn't mean countries like Germany and France. That means unbelieving un-Jews, right? Heathen people who are not of the Jewish bloodline. He was proclaimed to the world. Remember, again, uh, Matthew 28, go into all nations. Believed on in the world, that is, as Paul himself has seen, traveling throughout the heathen, there are those who are coming to faith. And congregations, assemblies of those who cling to this doctrine have popped up all over the ancient world, taken up in glory. That's a reference to his ascension. The point here overall is this again, that as much as we are to strive to live as those who have been redeemed by Christ the crucified, distinguishing good from evil and setting our feet toward what is good, we are never to forget that the mystery of what is good isn't what we do, but it's what Jesus has already done for us. 
that he, God, has become one of us, that he, God, has died for us, that he, God, has broken death by resurrecting for us, and that he, God, ascended into heaven as also a man, our brother and our king, the head of our household, who has chosen you again to be a member for everlasting life. The mystery of godliness is great. Yes. Then chapter four, verse one, he begins to warn us again about these false teachers. And he says, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. He's not talking about Buddhists and Muslims. He's talking about Christians who don't teach Christianity. They will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. One of the things I wrestle with, I think, more than anything else in my own spirituality is believing that the world of the New Testament is the world I live in now. It's very easy to read about demons and think, oh, the Bible talks about demons, and I put my head up and I go out to life, and the thought of dark spirits never enters my head again. Because that's just not the way we live. No one is assuming there's a bunch of demons around trying to do stuff. Yeah? And yet, that is the message of the New Testament. That our warfare is not against other people. Our enemies are dark spirits. Yeah? Principalities and powers of this present darkness. And what do they want to do? They want to teach you. See what it says? Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They want to teach you. This is why if you find yourself depressed, maybe try turning the TV off. Who are you listening to? What messages are they giving you? It certainly is not the message of the scripture. Now, he gives us a couple very specific teachings from the demons in chapter verse 3. He says that they will forbid marriage and they will require abstinence from foods. I don't know a Lutheran pastor alive who doesn't like to point out that the Roman Catholic Church officially forbids marriage to priests and teaches that you can't eat meat on Fridays. It's straight up a teaching of demons, according to this text. But I, I think it's far bigger than just that. This is talking about the destruction of marriage. So what do you see in the transgender and homosexual movements today? Once upon a time, they just wanted a place at the table. But more and more, it seems to be that they're forbidding that we would even have such things as good marriages. They're forbidding that we would teach our children that it's good to be a man and a woman. So the attack of the demon is always against the order that God created. And marriage is the primary order that God created. How can I say that? Genesis chapter 2 is the first thing he created men to be is man and woman and therefore to bring forth offspring. So the demons always want to break apart marriage and requiring abstinence from foods. They always want to make you think that by what you take into your body, you can make yourself more spiritually clean. You can see this in veganism these days where they get very moral about their food, right? It's immoral to kill a cow and eat the cow. It's moral instead to destroy an entire field and grow a bunch of soy and turn that into fake meat. Uh, Their morality is not so moral when you really dig into the science. Nonetheless, the point is they want you to believe that what you eat is part of your religion. Now, Christianity does say that what you eat is part of your religion, but it's not by abstaining from this or that. It's rather by coming to the table where the bread and the wine are given according to Christ's institution. 
But that's a very different thing from sort of the, the health and nutrition cult mindset that many people have today. I don't know how many of you know this, um, and you certainly don't have to follow me in this, but I have become in the last two and a half years what is called a carnivore. I lost about 25 pounds by just eating meat and healthy fats. I cut out all the vegetables. I, Pastor Fisk, have not eaten a vegetable with the exception of one salad at our potluck a week ago. I have not eaten a real vegetable for over a year or two. Now, the thing about this is though, what does that mean? Does anyone have, have to do this? As I've talked about this to individuals, it's amazing how quickly they get moralistic about it with me thinking I'm saying you have to be like me. Since I don't eat vegetables, therefore you must not eat vegetables. Now, this is what we want to avoid. We should not get religious about our diet because that is a teaching of demons. Now, to be sure, can a low-carb diet help you if you're eating way too much sugar? Probably, because sugar has some fascinating side effects. But is this religion? No, it's not religion at all. And the moment it gets into our religion, we again are being led astray by speculation. Observing what we see in the world, deciding that it's true, and then saying everyone else has to do it too because that's what God wants. That's what we want to avoid. Because what? Verse 4. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, I, I, I will say, I once sat at a table in a Chinese restaurant with a bunch of pastors, and we had a whole bunch of like sweet and sour chicken. So it's like, like deep fried corn syrup. And we all said, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, bless this food to our bodies. And I had the thought, I, I don't know. I don't know without a miracle that this food can be a blessing to our bodies. I'm not so sure about that, right? Um, but you know, again, the point here is that nonetheless, what did we do before we ate? We recognized we were in God's hands. We recognized that Jesus is the one in charge, right? And so rather than trying to live forever now as if we could, we understand that all gifts from, come from God and that we are to take them as stewardship and to push them into supporting our life in the word. Demons want to take us away from that. All right, so I think I wanted to also look at verse 5. No, we did look at verse 5. Uh, with a few moments left here, turn over to chapter 6, verse 3. should be on the next page, 993, where after all of this information, he affirms for Timothy again, Teach, this, this is verse 2b, but it's the start of the paragraph there. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, putting all the nutrition to talk aside, the point is, if anyone wants to disagree with the Bible, he is conceited and stupid. And we all need to know that. Does that mean we hate the person? No. Does it mean we listen to the person? No. <laughs> you don't listen to the person who speaks against the scriptures. And the pastor specifically is supposed to know this and stand firm on the sound words of Jesus. Notice what comes out of not holding to the Bible. It says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. 
did God really say? Does it really mean that, right? Unhealthy craving for controversy, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That gets back to the teaching of demons. They want you to believe that by becoming a Christian, you'll get more out of life. You'll get more health. You'll get more wellness. You'll get more money. You'll get more happiness. As opposed to you'll know the truth. You'll have a peaceful and quiet conscience. That's what Christianity promises. But the false teacher doesn't want that. They want you to believe it's going to get better and better and better and better. And that creates controversy and friction. The antidote is to be a people who know what the Bible says and will find more unity in that than all the other stories of the world could ever give. Because verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Remember what the mystery of godliness is. He is, well, he is risen. Alleluia. The mystery of godliness with contentment that is being okay with today because it's today and it's from God, is great gain. For verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Turn the page and look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Notice the condemnation is not on money, but on the love of money on the craving for more money. And if you have money, he says, don't set your hope on it. Set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, that's us, are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Verse 20, O Timothy, here is heart. O Timothy, Guard the deposit. That's the stewardship, the word of God you have. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have wandered from the faith. Flip back. The next page, previous page, chapter 6, verse 11. We're going to read out just a few more verses to close. These are some of the most famous verses in the book. I hope you will read at least chapter 6, verse 11 through 16, sometime again this week. As for you, O man of God, flee these things, right? Flee the lies. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Here's that famous verse. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Everyone here who's confirmed can apply that verse to their confirmation. It's not about confirmation, 
But confirmation is when you made the good testimony in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. You, verse 14, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom, the Father, no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Amen.